0: to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk, I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something people, the gentleman on my show today, he may be best known for being in the Sex Pistols where he wrote a lot of their music, but he's done so much other stuff. I listened to his album Good To Go and when I heard it the other night I'm like... I know that Slim Jim Phantom playing, and then I found out it was. And he used to be, I don't even still be in a band, but, you know, with, with everything going on, I don't know if they're playing together. He was in a band called the International Swingers, and I remember when I lived in L.A., my friend Diane Levinson went to see them at the uh, Maui Sugar Hill Saloon, and I was trying to remember what the bar was called, and I was Googling Maui Sugar Shack International Swingers, and the stuff that came up was just crazy. I was sitting there going, you know, now my, my whole line's going to be, my whole feed's going to be full of porno. And my um, guest is the one and only Glenn Matlock. How you doing, Glenn? How uh, you doing? Good her, all right? Yeah. yeah.
1: that was the International Swing. It was, um, it was like a one-off project with some mates when I was in California. Um, but yes, it did open the can of worms. With that if you Google it, it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. The name wasn't my idea. That was a bone of contention. Yeah. Yeah, there Ta- you go.
0: Tell me about that band. Well, first of all, what were you doing in California? Did, had you moved to L.A. for a while, or what were you doing over there?
1: Well, I like going there. I've got mates. It's, it's kind of quite funny as an Englishman. You can go to Los Angeles, and if you put your mind to it, you can never speak to an American, right? Because there's a whole coterie of English people. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but that's how some people operate. But there's, there's an English friend of mine called Gary Twin, he used to be in a band called The 25 Lockers, he lives there he's mates with Derwood, who's from generation X he did live there but moved out to to um, Arizona somewhere and the there's a guy called James Stevenson who floats between England and that and there's an honorary Englishman who played drums with Alex Clem Burke who's an old old friend I've known Clem for like nearly 45 years now and they said let's do some gigs let's write some stuff and there you go That's what happened we've made an album yeah well, that well, it wasn't really quite me. You know, you were just mentioned the good, uh, good To Go album. That's more what I'm kind of interested in.
0: I want to Being talk good. about it. I listened to that to the other night, you know, and you see when we had gone back before, you said listen to it, and I checked it out, and uh, and right away, there, there is a little bit of a, you know, I can tell how Slim Jim's involved, because it, it's got a great sound. How would, you, how would you describe the sound of that album?
1: Loud skiffle. Do you know what skiffle is? No, I don't. <laughs> oh and that's me and my big mouth. skeffel was like kind of the English equivalent of really early rockabilly. It was just guys with acoustic guitars and a tea chest bass or a bathtub bass and, and people playing washboards and things. But it, it kind of preceded the rock and roll boom over here. And that's where people started out. You know, all your big famous... Rock and Rollers in England, Jeff Beck, um, Jimmy Page, um, Eric Clapton, they were all in skiffle bands. In fact, there's a fantastic clip of Jimmy Page. He's on a TV show as a young kid. And I think it's the Hugh Weldon show. It's like from the, the late 50s, Black and White. And they're shepherded on. It's for, it's for kids who have unusual hobbies and the mums and dads put sent their name forward, and there's Jimmy Page on it, and the guy, who's like this real sort of, I don't know, what's the equivalent, he's sort of like a Walter Cronkite kind of character, he says to Jimmy Page, and he's sort of tapping money, I think he's got his school cap on, you know, and he's tapping money, he says, so what do you want to be Money you And he says, I want to be a guitarist, and the guy goes, yeah, ha, ha, and he says, no, I want to be a guitarist, and he was. You see, it's really quite funny, and I actually met Jimmy Page, Couple of times he come down to check out the sex pistols, and we was talking about that because that had been on the TV not long before. And I said, Do you know what happened there it was it was the guy, and he said, But well, it's funny. We got down there, we was like young kids, and we was shepherded in the green room. And all of a sudden, a door burst open, and Hugh Weldon came in. who was comes across as a really sort of middle class, sort of con- conservative of a small C kind of home counties kind of Englishman. Went, so where's these fucking kids at? <laughs> So even back then, they was doing it, but they just put, didn't put it out. But anyway, so there's a kind of string. you know, Every song I've ever written was written on an acoustic guitar, you know, with the personal stuff, stuff I'm doing now, stuff I did with with, with Biggie and all that. That's how I sit and write songs. And I've been doing loads of acoustic shows over the years. And I went to see um, Bob Dylan, right? And I took my friend, this girl, Patty Paladin, who used to work with Johnny Thunders and stuff, as a birthday treat. And um, da, 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 da. while I can appreciate Bob Dylan and he's written fantastic songs, he's a bit boring live. <laughs> he's got a total disdain for his audience. You can't recognize what song he's doing. The band are working overtime to try and work out what song he's doing. That's what it seemed like. Anyway, but anyway, I concentrated on the band who were fantastic. And we had great seats overlooking the band. It was Charlie Sexton, Tony Garner, and double bass and the drum i don't know it was but he played everything on brushes and i had all these songs i'd written in, and i thought actually i could do sort of like a punk version of that who do i know who's not overbearing on the drums and i thought slim jim who i've known for a long time i asked him if he'd be up to doing it he said sure you know he's got half a drum kit and then i said to him you got any ideas for a guitarist and he said el slip now i've done a bit with el slip who plays guitar on that album um a few years before, and I didn't even know Slim Jim knew all. So it kind of all just fell into place, and we made an album. Now... You're frozen. And we recorded it upstate New York, in Rhinebeck. Um, because it was like equidistant between where I live in London, Slim Jim in California, and El is round the corner. So, so that was it. And, and they suggested using this engineer that he'd worked with before, that it done Bowie's last album, a guy called Mario J. McNulty. And um, yeah, so that's what we did. So we made that. But now, that album, although it's good and it's the current one that's out, we've actually got a brand new album in the camp um, that we recorded last year, but it's all a bit on ice because of the lockdown thing that's happened. And that, that's good as well.
0: Well, tell, but, me, tell me about that album. And first of all, before you tell me about that album, you said you always start writing with an acoustic guitar you always why did you choose that method how did you choose that method to just start everything off with an acoustic
1: um just because i had one <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a, 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 an acoustic guitar is straightforward you know you go to, i do lots of solo shows right and you, you go up and when you get there with the band, you've got, you've got a band you got the drum check and they got to do this and then they. The keyboard player's got to plug something in. Hang on a second, I'm just going to shut the door upstairs so because somebody's over. Hang on. Right. Yeah. Sorry. There you go. And um hang around plug everything in and blah, blah 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 and it's you're just hanging around acoustic guitar you get there take it out of the box turn it up and you're ready to go it's immediate that's what i like about it and um that's what i learned to play on you know i know my way around acoustic guitar a bit not fantastically i've deliberately Never practice too much, you know, I know all my rudimentary chords and the minors and the majors and the sixth and the seventh and what's that one? Well, it might be a thirteenth, I don't really know, but then it all becomes an adventure after that and that's when you discover sort of new things. Well, I write a lot of songs, right in, walking down the street in my head, you see something, it gets your brain going, you get a little tune going and when those ideas don't go away, that's when it's time to pick up the guitar and work it out. So I rarely write something. I do sometimes, but I rarely write most of the song on a guitar. I just work it out on a guitar and it all comes out of my head here.
0: Now, now you said when you're walking down the street, because I I used to be a stand-up comic, and my bits would just come to me when I was laying in bed. You know, the writing process, it just pops in your head, and you go, holy shit, that's funny. And then you forget to write it down, and the next morning you're going, oh, fuck, what was it? I I can't remember. Hang on,
1: now there you go, right? And I've got a little studio at home, just MO studio on my computer with some decent software on it. And up until quite recently, my two boys were living with me who were in bands. And they want to get on the computer because they want to put an idea down before they forget it. I always say to them, and I say this to myself, if you're trying to write a catchy song and you've got to put it down before you forget it, how do you expect anybody else to remember it? And And it sounds silly, but I think that's quite a... You know, there's there's a good sort of maxim in that somehow. You know, if you can't remember it yourself,
0: yourself, nobody else is going to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so, okay, So you can get this idea, and then you can decide to write. Now, how long will it take you once you get this idea? You're walking down the street. Oh shit! I got to write this. And you sit down. You pick up the guitar. How long till it takes you until you till that song is completely formulated and you know exactly when
1: it's perfect. Um, years, I don't know, it's, it's, a, a song is an unfinished business but in its rudimentary form, it should take a week, two weeks, and sometimes you have half a song and you're stuck where it should go next and then then it might dawn on you one day that yeah, the, the middle bit of the song was something that you were stuck on from ten years ago that you never ended up finishing, you know, it, it really varies, it really varies. I think the best songs you write quite quickly um, it all depends how good as a lyricist you are and stuff that, that's where I struggle the music and you know, maybe the hook line comes the easiest but what you're trying to say in a song and how, you, how you're going to present it and you know what tense it's in and who's talking to who and what does it really mean What's it, all that that, that's the hard bit and that becomes harder as I get older you know if you're trying to write a song of some consequence and that isn't just a load of kind of easy rhymes that sound good,
0: you know. Now, how did you get into music? What were you like as a kid? Did you start playing music as a young kid? Were you around a musical family? What is your path into having a career which has lasted years and has gone completely different areas? How does how did how did what was little Glen Matlock like? Um.
1: Da, 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 da. Well working-class family, but, but uh, mum and dad didn't really, well, they didn't play anything. My nan lived up the road, and she played the piano, you know, like a kind of, we call it like a pub pianist. She didn't play in a pub, it was all like, I suppose you used to call it like honky-tonkers, or sort of burlesque style of playing. So she had a bit of musicality going on. Um, but where I lived in that part of London, it was very near an area called Labra Grove and Portobello Road. There was a quite heavy early West Indian immigrant population. But the school I went to, it was half West Indians and half white kids. And all the West Indians, you know, they were listening to Bluebeat and Scar and Laura and and stuff like that, you know, pre-reggae. And some of the older guys were like mods and, and proto hippies and things. And it all just seeped in somehow. and, also, kids my age, you know, only really about eight, nine, transistor radios come out, and everybody would have a transistor radio underneath their pillow at night when they had to go to bed. But you wouldn't go to sleep; you'd be listening to the pirate radio stations that were broadcasting the Kinks and the Who and the Yardbirds and the early Stones. And then there was this fantastic TV show, which I don't think has ever been better, called Ready Steady Go. And they would have all those bands on playing live, and the Beatles, and the Dave Clark Five, and the Kinks, Dusty Springfield was on it, and she got hip to to Tamla Motown. So she got people like Smokey Robinson on, and and Sam Cooke, and and Martha Reeves, and the Vandellas and they were on these TV shows, and they all had these three minute mini opera songs, you know, that were all about something of some some kind of consequences. Immaculate songwriting immaculate Plan. has got i mean i was a clip you, if you've never seen Ready steady go you should look it up on youtube there was a fantastic program on there. there was a clip they had on at christmas they made a special about it and it's um it's i wrote or or sam cook and the guy from chris farlow did out of time he said he was doing a gig in some club in london and he said there was this big black guy staring at him all the way through and it kind of put him off. He didn't really realise who he was. And then he came and knocked at his door afterwards and said, oh, can I come in? And he said, well, I'm doing this TV show tomorrow night. Do you want to come and be my guest too? And he'd also done the same thing to Eric Burden. is this fantastic clip. It's the same guy wrote this room. I can't remember. Doing, not a duet, a, a triplet with Eric Burden and Chris Farlock. It's fantastic. Stuff like that. How can you not fail to be, um, take that on board? You know, and I wanted a guitar, I got a guitar for Christmas, which I struggled to learn, to play, but I did eventually a bit. Um, But then also, I was going to say, what else was I going to say? Yeah, and the other thing, it's funny, you know, I've been accused of liking the Beatles a bit too much, not quite true, but I was, I was watching some clip of that eight days a week movie, um, that Ron Howard made. And in it, it, Paul McCartney gets asked what attracted him to John Lennon and The Other Way Round. And he said, it was kind of quite funny, because it sort of echoed with me, This because I, I didn't have any brothers or sisters, so you're a bit lonely sometimes, and you've got a guitar, and you sort of put your thoughts down with a guitar. McCartney said, well, you know, most people you would meet say, oh, you know, what do you get up to? when you're not working or at school or something like that, and people would talk about football or they like films, he liked writing songs. And John Lennon said the same thing. And that was their attraction. And I like trying to have a go at writing songs. Now, initially, I wasn't very good at it. But I did find out with songwriting that sometimes you're trying to learn somebody else's song and it's a bit too hard, right? (laughs) And then... You try and play it, but you're so far off that it sounds nothing like what you're trying to play, but it doesn't sound like anything else either. So it sounds like your own thing. So if you just go with it a bit more, you've got your own song. <laughs> and that's kind of what happens. I said that to a couple of mates and I go, well, I do that, don't tell anybody, I do that too. <laughs> so. Jokes might be like that, you know, you try and sell somebody else's <laughs> joke and get it wrong and then you're off some.
0: <laughs> so. Okay, so so you're, you're picking up guitar. Now, before the Sex Pistols started, did you have other bands? And, and no, no, that was my first proper band. So how did that happen? What, what was the origin of the Sex Pistols?
1: Well, it's a long story. But basically, Malcolm McLaren had, was our man, became our manager. He had a, a shop down the King's Road in London. And it was at the wrong end of the King's Road, it was a Teddy Boy shop. I don't know if you know what Teddy Boys are. Do you know what a Teddy Boy is? Yeah. Do, do your listeners know what they are? Probably like?
0: not. Tell us what a Teddy Boy is.
1: Well, it's, it's named after the Edwardian look. teddy. Is like a short for Edward. And it was working class blokes who tried to dress like toffs from the 20s and 30s. And they wear coats with with velvet colours on and stuff. And I think the best look of that, if you ever see the movie... Um, American Graffiti Kim Fowler's in it he plays like one of the aardment hoods you know the bit where they train up the car there's Kim Fowler in that and he's dressed like a teddy boy which wasn't really American thing, it, it was an English kind of thing anyway I had a shop like that and the teddy boy thing was the whole antithesis of what was going on in London at the time which had been like glam rock and kind of the tail end of the hippie thing and progressive rock and all that and Malcolm was doing this you know your hair slicked back and drainpipe trousers And we all individually made our way there. I got a job working there. Steve and Paul would come in to try and nick things. But one day I overheard that they'd um, had a fledgling band together and they always wanted to get Malcolm involved for some reason. I mean, he hadn't really done anything musically at that stage. And he kind of humoured him. And Paul Cook said, well, I don't know, we're trying to take it seriously, but our bass player never turns up. And about a month before that, I bought... cheap bass guitar for somebody at school. I was still at school at this stage, you know, I was like 16, 16 and a half. Then I was learning When I said, well, I play bass. And they said, don't do it. What's your favourite band? And my favourite band at that time was The Faces. And they went, wow, that's our favourite band too. So I went and had a play with them. And I was in. Simple as that, really, you know.
0: Was it was it easier Was it easy to transition from guitar to bass for you? Because you know some people just start with the bass. Was it an easy transition for
1: you? No, no, no. This um, I got a bass, and I soon found out when you get it home, the bass guitar. You get out of the case and you start playing it. You can't hear it, right? You need an amplifier. Then you need a lead that works, and then you're playing bass guitar by yourself. And you know what? It's like having a wank. <laughs> but you soon realise you need to play with other people. That's what was good about it. and um, You know, then I found out, we haven't got an amplifier, that the best way to hear it is you, you ram it against the wardrobe. You know, there's a big sound box, but you, you can't stand there all night like, I mean, I've, I've still got a stiff neck. I think it's from ramming And then I found out you could get the lead, the... the, the Jack Lee we call it, I think you call it called. take the end off undo the wires and attach it to the stylus of your radiogram right and it works it's great and we had this fantastic old radiogram made out of mahogany with valves and stuff I think it's still the best sound i ever owned. but you can't really take a radiogram as an amplifier on stage with you if you're going to be playing Wembley Stadium or something like that it's, it would look Actually, it'd be quite a good idea, but Maybe I
0: will it through that. <laughs> yeah, people will be like, "Look at that!" They'll go, "Did you go to that show?" He had that on the stage. If you know people, especially now with social media, you'll get three million hits on YouTube, and people will go. Young kids who are like twelve and thirteen. Go! I don't know who the Sex Pistols are, who Glenn Beck is, but he brought that shit on stage, and it was amazing. And you'll be, a, you'll be an an overnight success after being in the business for so long.
1: Yeah, 64 and a half overnight success. <laughs> well, there you go. That's what I'm going to do after lockdown. So I'm going to go and hunt down a radiogram. <laughs> <laughs> so- but then the, problem, then the problem is, if you go and tour, at a radiogram, right, it's quite a nice piece of furniture. And so you've got the record deck part of it, you've got the big speaker, you've got the radio part of it, which had like a little green magic eye, you know, when it's perfectly in tune, but it never seemed to correspond with all the stations that were printed You know, we'd have like, radio, in England, we'd have like Radio Moscow, Luxembourg, um, Radio Belgrade, that really never got them. but it was good to try, it was <laughs> But then, also, there was a compartment for all the LPs and the 78s, and on the top, you probably have, like, kind of a nice kind of uh, cotton doily with a vase of flowers and maybe a, you know, a table lamp and stuff, and a bowl of fruit. Now, what, did you, you take that round the world with you? And, <laughs> well,
0: you'll get fruit in every new market. You, know, you don't want to see yeah, fruit.
1: Then, and then, then do you need a bowl of fruit, Roddy? <laughs> and then you're going from border to border. Some places might not let you take apples in, but they might let you take the bananas in. Do you, what do you do? Is it going to be exactly the same every night?
0: And then, how many roadies do you have? Do you have an apple roadie? Do you have a
1: banana roadie? It's I'm telling nice you. you
0: know. But it's, 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 it's a thought, see that? That's the one thing, it's a thought. Yeah. So, you have an idea. So, so when you started writing songs for the Sex Pistols, how did you come up with the sound? I mean, you know, when you look back, you know, I remember when we would listen to that album, I remember I was, my friends, we were going to a party in Philadelphia, and they were wearing, they had pink, they had a one guy had a pink blazer and his hair stuck up. I'm like, what, what the hell are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm I'm punk. I go, dude, you're from a rich town in New Jersey. You're not a punk. I said, take that off. But they were listening to the Sex Pistols, and I started listening to them, and I really loved the sound. How did you come up with the sound? And was that all you? I mean, when you were coming up with it, what how I
1: wasn't old mate me. The whole thing about the Sex Pistols is everybody did their part, but all the songs on the album. It was the stuff that we played in our live set. And we gone through quite a lot of stuff. We played a lot of covers initially, um, just to kind of give us a starting point somehow while we was learning to do it. Um, I mean, but bands do that. I mean, I'm a big fan of the faces, as I told you. I was very lucky to play with them. And I know, earlier on, they used to do um, All Over Now, by Bobby Womack, you know. <laughs> used to love her, but, I'm all... but very soon they stopped doing it, and do you know why? Because they wrote "Stay with Me," and it, it's exactly <laughs> the same, you know. <speaking in the background> so it was a bit of that going on. You know, we do stuff and then we'd have something similar and that would kind of get ditched and we'd play our own version of it with a different title. There you go. But the sound came from just the way we all played and we all knew, right, from the get-go, the only thing we knew was that we wanted to be in a band. We knew what we didn't like that we didn't want to sound like didn't know what we did want to sound like we didn't necessarily know what we did want to sound like but we was going to do it anyway right it's a bit like some kid trying to be a boxer you know it was our way out of the the nine to five thing it was a different way of going about and I mean, it was sort of well placed you know being in the, what turned out to be Malcolm McLaren's shop the hippest place in London on a Saturday afternoon and the people that were coming there you know, Iggy Pop, like, I sold Mick Ronson a pair of pink lo- loafers once, which he then wore in that not very good movie, Ronaldo and Clara, you know, he, he was on the Rolling Thunder tour. And I stood up in the cinema and I said, I sold him and then everybody's going, Shh. <laughs> you know, people like that coming in and the New York dolls a bit.
0: And- what, what was the scene like being a punk at that time? I know you mentioned James Stevenson. James was on the show, and he said, you know, people would chase you down the street if you were a punk. Like, you know, it was a different scene. What was the scene like being a punk as it was starting out? Before people said, oh, punk rock's cool. What was the scene like for you guys?
1: Um, well, it wasn't really a scene. We, we, we kind of created it. And being, this shop was in Chelsea. And I booked the first shows because I then got on to Art college. And our first first, um, audience and clientele were a few people who came in the shop, kind of art school kids, really. And the thing with the art school kids in London, they were a real mismatch of kind of mad working-class blokes and kind of socialite debutants who'd been sent there as some kind of finishing school by their dads. And it, it was like a little bit of everything all mixed up, but they were all people who kind of went on to do something cool. I think the biggest illustration in this, the very first show we played was at my art college, St. Martin's, but I'd actually booked one just before then, and then we ended up playing at the second with the social secretary. Now, the guy was called Alexander McDowell, and he became quite a decent artist, moved to Hollywood. I've kept in touch with him over the years. He... Called me up about a year and a half ago, he was in London. Oh, hi, can we, you know, let's meet up and have lunch or something. So, what are you doing? He said, I'm at Pinewood. Now, I know what that means when he's at Pinewood. Pinewood is a big film studio on the outskirts of London where it's got the world famous James Bond stage where they make all the James Bond movies and all that. I said, What are you doing there? He was art directing Star Wars 9, right? And the only thing he didn't finish doing it because that was when Carrie Fisher passed away and the script all hinted on that, but he's done loads of things, the Terminal, the Watchmen and all that. He was the first bloke to ever make a proper booking of the Sackettisfields. So there's all people like that, fashion people, musicians, some of the people who hung out in the shop and come to our fair shows, Well, one of the girls was Susie, Susie from the Banshees. There was another guy called William Broad, Billy Idol. You know, they were the people who come to see us. And we just created our own scene. There wasn't really a scene. And then there was kind of some, I mean, it was on the ages of, of the, the kind of the gay scene and, and stuff like that. And they was always a bit more kind of outlandish. Didn't really care about this, that, and the other. I mean, I do remember going to a club with Malcolm and Vivian where they only let guys in or Vivian who looked a bit outlandish and Jordan who also worked in the shop. There was the only two women ever going in there. We was in the, in the middle of the floor in 1975 doing the hustle, doing the hustle. You know, at the, 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 the school. I can do the hustle. <laughs> so it was, it was quite a broad palette, you know. But that was my experience of it. Steve and Paul had a different thing. John brought something totally different to the table. Now, uh, what ha- who,
0: who was? Had the who wrote the majority of the lyrics? How did how did the songwriting break up?
1: John, John John wrote the majority of the lyrics, but not all of them. One of the very first songs that we did was pretty vacant. I wrote that; as my lyric, and that was a, a bit of a sort of a manifesto, you know. Um, but it was John's department to write the lyrics. So in bands, you got to kind of give people their their space a little bit. Steve wrote a couple of things mainly Seventeen, you know, which is Seventeen or I'm a Lazy Son. Me and John, actually, I think the only song we really sat down and co-wrote together was Submission. And we wrote that because Stephen Paul didn't turn up to rehearsals one day. and Malcolm had an idea for a title for a song, Submission, which he kind of wanted it to be all about bondage and domination and all that, which we thought was stupid. So we wrote about a submarine mission mainly to take the mickey out of Malcolm, <laughs> you know. So we just traded lines in a pub over a Bear and then I went home and worked some chords out and when Steve and Paul came out the next day, I said, oh, I've got this idea, it goes like this. And then they put their thing on it, you know, the way Paul plays drums and the way Steve plays the guitar. And when we did the demo for it, Steve featured, instead of doing a guitar solo, he played the kettle. And there's some great pictures of an the electric kettle, not plugged in, of course, by the microphone. is submarine, you need sort of bubbly noises, and you're <laughs> down a spout. And it's, it, was, it was fun, you know, we had fun.
0: You guys were so young when it happened. I mean, what? how long were you actually in the band for? Um, about
1: two and a half years, I think.
0: What is it like being that age? And, you know, you're getting a following. I mean, it must be just different because, you know, most people are going to university or, or you know, whatever. What was it like for you guys experiencing that? Because, you know, life must have been out of control for you.
1: It kind of was, but, yeah, you I know, there was some wild and crazy times, but there was also, I, I've always thought, now for the other guys, I don't know, you know, we all had our, our own degrees and laughs and stuff. But I was kind of quite serious about kind of getting on somehow. And when the Blues Brothers movie came out, which came out after the Sex Pistols, there's a scene when they get out of prison and they go around trying to get the band together and they go to some bar where Arisa Franklin's there. And it's going, oh, don't you guys come in here? You know, good kind of "Well, can we leave a message for Zeke or whatever his name is? And, yeah, what, you, what should I tell him? I don't know. He says, well, we're getting a band to get together. I tell him we're on a mission from God to get the band back together. And I didn't think he was on a mission from God, but he was on some kind of mission to educate the rest of the world to our way of thinking. You know, And right from the get go, just because of where we were placed and the people that were hanging around, I mean, down the road, there was a shop called Granny Takes a Trip where the Rolling Stones would get their kind of dandy fashions from and the Beatles, I found out recently as well. Because it was Chelsea, you would see um, Brian Ferry sort of swanking down the road with Anthony Price, who was his fashion designer friend. Malcolm thought they were all tossers, so we did too. But they were all sort of millionaires, and we didn't have nothing. But It gave us the right attitude for a rock and roll band.
0: So what happened when you when you left? What was was there a big fallout? I mean, there's so many different stories. Someone you know, you read, you read stuff. That's the thing about the internet. You read stuff. Someone says you washed your feet too much, which makes no sense. Like, what the, but that's just like, that's so weird. What 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 yeah, is it your became, story? It,
1: it became a different thing. When I was in the band, and I think the other guys have now come round to my way of thinking. four years later, but when I was in the band, it was like a band by the kids for the kids, like akin to the early Who soon as we started getting crazy press instead of being on the front page of the music papers and was on the front page of the the national newspapers which is great in a way everything changed malcolm changed john changed and malcolm was trying to pitch it as there was some kind of art um you know like the bay city rollers with different trousers not realizing that we actually kind of good and there was a dishonesty to it to me. We were supposed to be banned everywhere. I'd go out somewhere and see another band playing, and a promoter would come up to me and say, oh, Glenn, tell Malcolm, we'll put you on. So i go and tell Malcolm, and he's going, no, 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 we're banned. I said, no, this guy would say, and this happened quite a few times. I was like, hang on, this is wrong. It's not. I wanted to be in a band that played and not be some kind of media actor. So, so I began to lose interest, really, and, and um, sort of felt I'd done my bit. But then also we were signed to EMI and if you want to know the inside story there was a guy at EMI who was like the junior A&R guy and I was quite friendly with who went on to become a big record producer but Mike Thorne the tank that love by soft and loads of stuff but he wanted a meeting with me and he said look Glenn we know that there's a problem at EMI between you and the other guys and we hope you sort it out but he said, if you don't, we see you as the main tunesmith in the band and we'd be more than interested in anything else you come up with. I, I've you know, just turned 20, I'm kind of getting shit from John and Malcolm. It's not going the way I want to do it. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. You know, and I've kind of gave it some time and it didn't. the guys didn't back me up on this, that, and the other. And I started putting another band together. And that was it. And I didn't rush to sign to M.I. I thought if they thought that, all the other record companies would do, and they did. But AMI made this the best offer, and I started getting a load of shit, so I thought I will sign AMI, and fuck you, look. <laughs> That's what happened. So whether that was a good thing for the history of rock and roll, I don't know. But the Sex Pistols were always, always doomed to have a short shelf life. I think if we stayed together, there might have been one or two albums, but I could never imagine down the line, us doing a big ballad, you know, like the Stones do Angie. Can you imagine John Lee Rotten singing our version of that? <laughs> Ain't gonna happen, is it? So <laughs> you know, all those things we're going through my twenty just turned twenty year old mind. And that was
0: it. So when you left, how did the rich kids come about? And how did you know how did you mid mid your how did how did you guys know each other?
1: Um well before we got John in the band, Malcolm and Bernard Rhodes who went on to manage the clash were mates and was around they we was on the lookout for singer they' gone to Glasgow to do something they went in a music shop and you got to remember back then everybody but everybody had long hair and flares everybody did apart from us and they went into this music shop about something or other to do with Steve Jones which I won't go in now you can ask him about it' another time and they saw this guy who had a quiff you know short like 50s. Looked like something out of R or something like that. Got talking to him, got his number, and they came back to London a few days later, and I actually called him up and said, you know, we're looking for a singer. Would you be interested in coming down to London? And he said, well, thanks for asking. He said, but I've just got involved in this other project, um, and it looks like it's going to take off, and it did. And he had a band called Slick, and they had a number one hit in England, and they had a top ten hit after that. Anyway, this was two or three years later than that by now. And I tried out, when I was with Rich Kids, so I got the drummer and the guitarist pretty much together. Steve knew who would actually come and tried out for the Sex Pistols when at one stage we was going to have a, a second guitarist and he didn't. And then it was announced I'd left the band and I went to a pub down Chelsea that I hadn't been to for a year. And I walked in, this guy Steve come in looking for me because he'd read this thing that I'd left the pistols. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm following the band. And he went, all right, then. And then I went to another gig. I went to see Rockpile, And this guy came up to me and he telling me what a great drummer he was. And, and he tried out for the Clash, for the Clash, and blah, 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 He wasn't sure if he was going to get it. I want to get on with something. I said, all right, you're the drummer. And he went, brother, you know, and he's still trying to come. I said, no, you're the drummer, right? And I knew full well if he was no good, that I could give him, you're not the right guy. But when I introduced him to Steve, they knew each other because they both worked at WA Records in London as a runner, you know, delivering things to people. And Steve had taken Rusty's job. So they knew each other. It was kind of funny. So we had a band and then we tried out every singer in London. But nobody could really sing properly. And the pressure was beginning to be on. And I kind of, we had some rehearsal. It didn't work out with the singer going, and, like, and I was in the West End of London. And I went in the record store and just flicking through the records and I found this record by Slick that Midge had been in and they'd been and gone by then. I thought, I wonder what he's doing. So I got the management there to put some calls in and he came down to London and he tried out. He didn't join immediately. We did some gigs with me singing and my mate Mick Jones helped us out on guitar as well. So we did about four or five shows like that. But Mitch joined the band, we made that record. Then we got involved. Mick Ronson ended up producing it. Um, so I met him through doing that. And through that, I met Ian McLagan. He came down to do a session. In fact, Mick Ronson was playing the piano on one of the tracks on the album. And I found it upon myself to say, Mick, you're a very good pianist, but it ain't right. And he'd be like, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's got to be more rock and roll. And he said, what do you mean? Like Jerry Lee Lewis? I said, no, not really. He said, Who then? I said, Well like Ian McLagan. And he went, I don't really play like that. And the engineer who was in the studio said, Ian McGlagan was down here yesterday. I've got his phone number. So we called him up and he won't do nothing and he came down. So he said, you don't get what you don't ask for in life, you know. And I've got really good friends with Ian and he did a tour with us. And it was like having the white book of tea on tour with you. He's that good, I think. And through him, many years later, we kept in touch. I got him a gig to play with the faces eight,
0: nine years ago now, you know? Tell, tell me about that, when you got to play with the Faces, because, you know, you, you, it, it must be something where you, it's a band you've liked, and then all of a sudden, you get to play with them. I mean, how did that come about? Just because you knew Ian, or what happened?
1: Well, I i kind of lost touch with Ian for a little bit, and then he was on a radio show, because he moved to America, and then he was on a radio show, and I know the guys on the station, and I called him up, and I said, here, give... My number to Mac when the show's finished, and he called me up straight away. And he said we met up for for a drink. And I said, "What are you doing?" He said, well, "I'm doing this and I'm doing that." And you know, did some stuff with Dylan. And he said, Bruce Springsteen keeps calling me up. Oh, I don't really like his stuff that much, you know. <laughs> and yes, they're calling me up. And he said, "I like songs that got a beginning, a middle, and an ending. Not like it's none, one never-ending kind of thing." I said, well, what do you really want to do then? He said, well, I want to reform the faces. And I thought, right answer. And Ronnie Lane had passed away by then. And I said, look, you know, that I know, that you know, that I know, that you know, that I'm the right bloke for the job. So put a word in for me. And it didn't happen immediately. And they were talking about it for a couple of years. And then he said, look, we're going to do it. Are you sure you're up for it? And I said, Matt, I learned to play with these songs. I know I'm all backwards. And he went, oh, great. I said, yeah, but the problem is it's forwards I'm not sure about. And he <laughs> laughed. And then they got a real good sense of humour. I think that, that last line was probably what got me to get... You know, it was good. We didn't do that many shows, but it was the band that I used to stand in front of the mirror when I was 14 or 15, pretending I was in a, you know, and then the last gig we played in front of 50,000 people, headlined in the Fuji Festival in Japan. And it's great. You know, Ronnie Wood is a great guitarist. He's my favorite guitarist of all time. Kenny Jones is my great favorite drummer. And Ian McLagan's is the, the thing. The only drag was Rod didn't do it, but this guy Mick Cutt sang, and he's great. You know, and it was, the faces to me were always a great rock band with a great soul singer, and it still was. So,
0: now, you've, you've been in so many interesting projects. Uh, tell me about... a. Which is it's, I don't know where the name came from, Slinky Vagabond. What, tell me about that project.
1: Well, that, was, that was just a one-off thing. We we did a couple of shows. It was a friend of mine, Michael Keen and Dufty, who's mainly a fashion designer who, who sings a bit, lives in New York, um, good lad. He and, and this is back in this is going back a long way, right? He put some of his tracks that he'd written up on MySpace. And he said, this guy's called me up, he said he likes them. Do you want to do something together? He said, what should I do? And I said, well, who is it? And he said, it's Elle Slick. I said, well, do them, you idiot. You know, said, <laughs> you think so? I said, well, why not? So anyway, he started doing a little bit with Elle. And, and then this guy came and called me up again and said, actually, I bumped into Clemberk. And he said he put some drums on it. But You know, if we sent you some files over can you put some bass on it in London? I said, listen, I wasn't there much at the time. I said, look, if Clem's going to do it and El Slick's going to do it, book a studio and I'll just jump on a plane and come over. And we went to this place up in Rhinebeck. And um, that's where I met Slick for the first time. And the first t- the first time we started playing, Slick said, what songs is this key in? And I said, it's in B or something like that. So he gets his capo out and puts it on. I said, oh, you're not doing all that cheating, are you? <laughs> and he's watching... You- and it, we, had, we started having a good relationship with because I was taking the mickey out of it. But it was just a fun kind of thing, but it got me playing with slip, you know, and Slinky about And the other, the other thing at the time, Kenan had designed a fashion range for Target with David Bowie. And all across America, there was a little tiny Bowie rack sections with a picture of Kenan and David Bowie face to face. We thought that could be quite a good marketing employer if it took off. But, you know, in Blondie, Slick was doing something else. I was probably going to do then other pistols. Nobody was in the same place enough at the same time to see it through, which is what happens in bands a, a lot. But you, you make contacts and connections there. And they, they last you if you get on with people.
0: Now... You also, there were some reunion tours with the Sex Pistols. What was that like? I mean, it was did you guys, you're all adults now. You're not young kids. You're not, you know, young kids. What was it like when you guys got together? Some of us are. <laughs> what was it like when you guys got to, together to play?
1: It was all right, you know. We had a bit more respect for each other. Still some of the same animosities and distrust. But the difference is when you've had too much to drink, or you didn't have that last beer because the drummer nicked the last beer or the last slice of pizza, and then you have to be in the back of the van with no windows for five hours, driving home from Liverpool, you really get on each other's nerves. But this time around, we were doing massive gigs and we flew everywhere first class. And we didn't even necessarily, not only be on the same flight, we didn't even fly on the same day. And when that's going on, you can afford to come to an accommodation with each other, so you you just rehearse and you get that out of your system, and you just walk on stage and do it.
0: Now, what happened with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?
1: Um, I was quite pleased about it, um, but I didn't think it was the end. You know, the be all and end all in the world. Um, Steve felt much the same as me. Paul didn't. Oh, I don't know. And John was vehemently against it, but he, I think he was only vehemently against it because everywhere he goes, he wants to take all his friends and you could take one or two people, but he wanted a table about 12 and they wanted to charge him like 20 grand for the table. <laughs> That's why he got annoyed. So he turned it down without saying anything to the rest of us. So he was annoyed about that. That was it, basically. I, I had no trap with the Hall of Fame. I'm going to show you something. And I I was quite mates with a couple of the guys there, and I said, "Look, you know, I would have come, and I would quite like my award. Can't you send it to me?" And they went, "We can't really do that because whether you're, you know, you're in it, whether you want to be or not, right?" That's what's the theory. I said, "Can't you send me the award?" They said, "Well, we're not really allowed to do that. We got presented you." Oh, anyway, I was doing some touring with Sylvain Sylvain. We did like a double header show. And then we did a show in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was like in the theatre there, sold out. The guy was answering questions like this and then we did a show each. But the sound check before I am, they presented me with my award. Now, bear in mind, I'd asked them to send it to me and they wouldn't. And they presented me the award. And Sylvain Sylvain actually gave it to me. Look, I got it. Awesome. I got it. But the thing is, it's blinking heavy. And I'm traveling like, you know, with a suitcase and the guitar. I said, I can't lug this around. They said, no, no problem, we'll send it to you. <laughs> oh, <darn. laughs> they, had, they had to actually kind of give it to me in person, you
0: know. Now, before we go, tell me about the new, the new album that you said is in the can. Tell me, is it is it a lot like uh, Good to Go, or is it have a different sound? Does it have that that, that it's, it's,
1: it's, Slim Jim's not on this one um, just because he was doing something else when we did it. Um, I've got my mate Chris Musto plays drums in it. Slick's on it. Um, I actually went to see the opening of the Clash exhibition at the big art gallery in London and this bloke tapped me on the shoulder and I looked round it was Norman Wockwright from the Blockheads. Do you know that band? The yeah. Endurance now, if I have my picture taken with him, I always say, ace, player and half, ace, player and three quarters, he's a bit good normal. I So, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm going in the shooting. He went, I'm not doing anything. He says, you wanna come and play some bass with me? He went, yeah, all right. So he plays bass on a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. I've got a few guests. I've got this guy called Hotai, um, who's like the Japanese Jeff Beck, basically. He'll do like three nights at the Budokan and he plays on a track, um, Neil Axe from Zig Zig Sputnik, and the slit. but the songs are kind, of, it's a little bit more of a soul kind of, influence somehow, I think maybe through, what Roy, who used to play with Gino Washington, and the Ram Jam Band in England, which is kind of cool, um, okay, so, I'll see you later, thank you very much, I'll speak to you soon, now, yeah. um, so it's my cleaning lady, um, there you go. No, and this guy Hotto, it was kind of cool. Well, I went to see him play in London with Neil, who got me some tickets. And they came out, and I support this football team called Queens Park Rangers, right? And they always have a theme tune as they come out. in the picture goes... I always thought that's kind of cool. So he comes out, and he's playing this song. And I turn to Neil and say why is he playing the Queen's Park Rangers theme tune? And he looked at me, he said, you're an idiot. I said, well, I know that, I could have told you that, but why? He said, it's a theme tune from Kill Bill, and he wrote it, and I'm like, oh. (laughs) Anyway, he plays on the album, this this guy Hutto is called Dude. And um, I actually made an album before Good To Go, I put out lots of things, there's an album called Paul Running, which you should check out. It's a bit more straightforward rock and roll. Green Day, some of it, I think if Green Day put it out, it would be, would have been a big hit, but there you go. And I think this album I've just written and recorded is a bit of an amalgamation of the two, with knobs on, but it's good, I'm, I'm pleased with it, it's cool.
0: Now, from the Sex Pistols, through all your career, and to now, how... Has your writing style, besides getting idea, how have you grown as a writer? Not how has it changed? How have you grown as a writer? And have you, in your eyes? I know, I
1: think one of the I haven't got a title for the new album yet, but I was thinking of calling it SOS. Then you gotta ask me what SOS stands for.
0: What's SOS stand for?
1: Same old shit. Okay. I, I don't know, it's, it's, how does it change? I still kind of go about it the same way in some kind of cack-handed fashion, musically, but then, you know, I like a short three and a half minute song that kind of builds and has got a good chorus and all that, but then you have different people playing it who put their stamp on it and you've invited them to play on it, mainly because they're cheap, but actually because they're good as well, so you have to respect their way of going about things. Um, but lyrically, it, just kind of where you're at in life really and some of those things you don't always totally understand what you're feeling i think that psychoanalysts probably don't make as much money out of songwriters as they do out of people who run a supermarket because the people who run a supermarket haven't got an outlet for all these kind of weird dark thoughts whereas a songwriter has so it's kind of where you are. it has been a lot going on in the world, you know, with, with Trump and Brexit. And blah, 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 blah. So I think that's affected the songs that I wrote in the previous year to record. And I think. In fact, we did put a little single out recently, just in lockdown. And there's a song off the new album, but it's just an acoustic version of it. Because L. Slick was, um, he ended up being stuck in lockdown with me, and we did a few face time live things and stuff and then we recorded some stuff in a bit of a Bob Dylan um, basement tapes kind of vibe so I've picked a couple of things from that but from that there's a song called Consequences Coming which I think with are the far right thing that's going on hopefully I don't know where you are on this but I'm vehemently against all that and I think a lot of people are going to come unstuck when the light begins to shine a little bit more don't know hope so as far as England's concerned anyway
0: me too. And you know what? That's the perfect way to end this interview, man. It was great. Now, where can people... I know you tweet, you're on Twitter. That's where I found you on Twitter. How can people find you and find your music and all that good stuff?
1: Well, they can follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. But I've also got a website, glennmatlock.co.uk. It's just one, one N in Glenn because two is a waste of the letter. dot glennmatlock.co.uk. Um, the albums are available on Spotify, um, iTunes, stuff like that, Amazon. Check
0: it out, you know. So, people, go check out Glenn Matlock, buy his albums. It is very good. I listen to it, and I'm going to listen to it again. And I'm going to listen to his, all his other stuff, because why not? i got nothing to do. I'm, I'm in lockdown. Uh, people, go go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 840 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.